Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a three-year-old girl with altered mental status and acute respiratory failure. Here is the case presented by Rahul. A three-year-old girl presents to the PICU with altered mental status and difficulty breathing. Per mother, patient was in usual state of health on the day prior to admission when mother left her in the care of her maternal grandmother. When mom arrived home later in the afternoon, she was unable to wake her child and reports that she seemed very stiff. She did not have any abnormal movements or shaking episodes. Mom called 911 and patient was brought to our emergency department. There was no known head trauma, though patient was in the care of her maternal grandmother throughout the day. The patient had no emesis and there were no recent sick symptoms. The patient did not have any witness ingestion. However, the patient's mother reports that the maternal grandmother is on multiple medications, including blood thinners such as Zoralto, sleep aids such as Zolpidem, Boostpar for depression, Gabapentin for neuropathic pain, and as-needed acetaminophen. Due to her pain, the grandmother also uses THC-containing products, specifically in the form of THC gummies. In the emergency department, the patient had waxing and waning mentation with decreased respiratory effort. Her GCS was recorded at 7. An arterial blood gas was performed and showed findings of a pH of 7.26, PCO2 of 61, PO2 of 31, and a base excess of 0. The patient was intubated for airway protection in the setting of a likely ingestion. The patient had no allergies and her immunizations were up to date. Her vital signs were notable for a blood pressure of 112 over 52, a pulse of 106, temperature of 36.2, respirs of 14, weight of 14.2 kilograms, and SpO2 100% shortly after intubation. Physical exam was unremarkable. Pupils were 4 to 5 millimeters and sluggishly reactive. There were no other physical exam findings such as rash. Her initial CMP had a normal anion gap. Her CBC and respiratory viral panel were unremarkable. Serum toxicology screen for acetaminophen, salicylates, and alcohol were also unremarkable. A basic urine drug screen was sent and came back positive for THC. Excellent case, Rahul. So to summarize key elements from this case, our patient has altered mental status, more like a waxing, waning mental status with a a Glasgow coma scale of less than eight, which is suggestive of decreased ventilation effort pre-intubation. We have impending acute respiratory failure. We have dilated but reactive pupils, all of which bring up a concern for a possible ingestion Uh, such as maybe THC in this case, but we cannot rule out other ingestions. This episode will be organized into three parts. One, pharmacology of cannabis. Number two, clinical presentation of cannabis toxicity. And finally, number three, workup and management of cannabis toxicity. Before we get into our episode, I do want to highlight a unique fact. The cannabis 
sativa plant contains over 500 chemical components called cannabinoids, which exert their psychoactive effect on specific receptors in the central nervous system and also have effect on the immune system. The two best described cannabinoids are THC and cannabidiol, also known as CBD. These agents are commonly used for medical purposes. Now, patients with intractable epilepsy or chronic cancer pain may be using these drugs. The THC is the active ingredient of the cannabis plant that is responsible for most symptoms of central nervous system intoxication. The term cannabis and the common name marijuana are often used interchangeably. Rahul, can you shed some light on the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics of cannabis? Absolutely. Cannabis exists in various forms. Marijuana, hashish, hash oil, and all of these forms can be either smoked, inhaled, or ingested. The THC is the active ingredient of the cannabis plant that is responsible for most symptoms of central nervous system intoxication. The potency of cannabis is usually based on the THC content of the preparation. THC itself is lipid-soluble and highly protein-bound and has a volume of distribution of 2.5 to 3.5 liters per kilo. The THC binds to brain cannabinoid receptors, producing dose and time-dependent stimulant, hallucinogenic, or sedative effects. Cannabis can be consumed through inhalation, either smoking or vaping, as well as oral ingestion and via the transcutaneous rectal or vaginal routes. On inhalation of cannabis, due to rapid delivery to the brain, the THC serum concentrations peak within 10 to 30 minutes and have their duration for up to four hours. Approximately two to three milligrams of inhaled THC is sufficient to produce drug effects in a naive user. In contrast, on oral consumption, due to poor bioavailability, cannabis has a delayed onset of psychoactive effects that range from 30 minutes to three hours and can actually last up to 12 hours. Because of enterohepatic circulation and slow release from the lipid storage compartments, the elimination of THC after oral intake ranges from 25 to 36 hours. In naive users, psychotropic effects occur with 5 to 20 milligrams of ingested THC. So Pradeep, we talked a lot about the pharmacokinetics of cannabis and THC. Do you mind just going into a little bit about the mechanism of action of THC? Not a problem. Rahul, there are two known cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2. The CB1 is a G-protein coupled receptor that provides inhibitory modulation of neurotransmitters, including norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, gamma, aminobutyric acid, and acetylcholine. The CB1 receptors are found in high densities in the cerebellum, basal ganglia, cerebral cortex, and hippocampus. The action of cannabinoids at these locations is thought to contribute to cannabinoids' ability to produce the cognitive and motor impairment of the cannabinoid toxidrome. Now, THC can produce wide-ranging symptoms and signs involving the neurological, i.e. you can have euphoria, disorientation, impaired memory, ataxia, stupor, or coma. You can have issues with eyes such as dilated and sluggish pupils with injected uh, conjunctivae, cardiovascular effects such as tachycardia, and GI effects such as nausea, vomiting, increased appetite, or thirst. So Rahul, the question becomes, are there any symptoms that are unique to children with regards to cannabis toxicity? 
Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think our case really highlights some of the key features of cannabis toxicity in children. Now, unintentional cannabis poisoning in children may be a consequence of legalizing cannabis for adult use. Cannabis, as we mentioned, comes in many forms, edible gummies, chocolates, and baked goods. And these are actually now available in most parts of the United States and Canada. A recent NEJM study published in 2022 reported that legalization of cannabis products was associated with an increased incidence in pediatric hospitalizations related to cannabis poisoning. This was especially true in certain provinces of Canada. The potency of cannabis in a single product can be variable and potentially high. A single food item, for example, can contain 400 milligrams or more of THC, and that is 10 to 20 times the typical oral dose of THC. In some instances, a single chocolate bar or brownie can contain 10 to 50 adult doses of THC, and this can be a toxic dose for a young child. Among children under 10 years presenting to a children's hospital with THC exposure, 50% are related to an edible cannabis product with cases attributed to poor child supervision or lack of adequate storage or child-resistant packing. Prevention is going to be key in this situation. More recently, cannabis vaping or the use of vaporized form of THC is common amongst teenagers. The THC can also be extracted by lipophilic, volatile, organic solvents into a highly concentrated waxy resin. This is also referred to as dab, shatter, butane, hash oil. Now, the THC content is actually pretty high in these canna vaping forms. The manifestations of cannabis intoxication among infants are primarily related to changes in the sensorium from encephalopathy to even frank coma. Older children and adults with marijuana intoxication present typically with a wide range of symptoms, and these can range from cardiovascular effects such as tachycardia, hypertension, ophthalmological effects like Pradeep mentioned with the pupillary changes, respiratory, remember our patient had bradypnea in the case, and gastrointestinal, dry mouth, increased appetite, also known as the munchies, and neurological effects such as sleepiness, somnolence, ataxia, and slurred speech. So uh, Rahul, th that was an excellent summary of the manifestations of cannabis toxicity in children. I just want to kind of reiterate that the term edibles is now commonly used to refer to food products containing cannabis. Edibles are available in numerous forms, including baked goods, candies, gummies, butter oils, and beverages, as Rahul has already mentioned. Typically, edibles are sought out for recreational use due to their greater concentration of THC. Also, another point to remember is the newer synthetic versions of THC are being constantly developed, and they may remain undetected on drug testing. So Rahul, if you had to work up this patient with cannabis toxicity, what would be your diagnostic approach? That's a great question. Now, acute cannabis intoxication is a clinical diagnosis, especially with a clear history of an adult using THC gummies and a unintentional ingestion by a toddler. Now, cannabis intoxication should be suspected when an afebrile child with no prior past medical history presents with neurological impairment such as drowsiness, lethargy, or coma, and a lack of focal neurological signs. Remember, these patients are going to just be globally somnolent. Now, labs will include 
eight arterial blood gas, basic metabolic panel to check serum glucose and electrolytes, a serum toxicology panel, including salicylates and acetaminophen, as well as a urine drug screen. Now, with any ingestion, you really want to monitor for the cardiovascular effects. So getting a baseline EKG, as well as even a chest radiograph is warranted uh, based on any specific clinical manifestations your patient may have. If the patient is going to be comatose and intubated, you really want to screen for subclinical status epilepticus through use of a continuous EEG. We also need to be aware of co-ingestions such as cocaine, opioids, and acetaminophen. So make sure you have a broad and expansive workup early on. So Pradeep, as we wrap up our episode, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to acute cannabis toxicity as our working diagnosis, what would be your general management framework? That's a good question, Rahul. I think the PQ care of the infant or older child with acute cannabis intoxication is largely supportive with a focus on airway, breathing, and hemodynamics. One point to remember is naloxone or Narcan will not reverse coma, apnea, or hypoventilation associated with cannabis and intubation may be needed early. As ICU docs, we need to correct any hypovolemia, correct any electrolyte uh, abnormalities, especially uh, hypoglycemia. Most teenagers and adults presenting with acute cannabis toxicity have mild intoxication with dysphoria that can be managed supportively in a dimly lit room. Decreased simulation and for patients with marked anxiety or agitation, the use of benzodiazepines may be required. Chest pain in teenagers and adults may arise from a pneumothorax because of prolonged breath holding during cannabis use exacerbation of underlying pulmonary disease such as asthma or rarely myocardial ischemia or infarction. Patient may complain of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which consists of abdominal pain, vomiting, or nausea, which is sometimes relieved by hot showers. Although cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is seen with chronic ingestion, it may be seen with acute on chronic use. Acute treatment consists of symptomatic care, including intravenous fluid hydration, anti-emetics, benzodiazepines, and cessation of cannabis use. So Rahul, what are some of the clinical polls regarding cannabis for pediatric critical care folks? Absolutely. I wanted to highlight three pearls. Number one, acute cannabis intoxication can result in altered mental status and acute respiratory failure in infants and children. Our case really highlighted this today. Our second pearl today is that cannabis intoxication should be suspected when there is an afebrile child with no prior medical history who presents with neurological impairment such as drowsiness, lethargy, or coma, and an absence of focal neurological deficits. Our final pearl relates to cannabis and the use of procedural sedation in the ICU. There have been studies that have reported that daily cannabis use has been associated with a significantly higher propofol dose to achieve adequate sedation compared to those who do not use cannabis. In this study, there was not an increased incidence of adverse events in these patients. Similarly, studies report increased need for fentanyl as well as midazolam in patients with daily cannabis exposure. This is especially going to be important in teenagers who may be using cannabis long term. It is hypothesized that propofol may impart a portion of its sedative effects via the endocannabinoid system, 
in patients with daily cannabis exposure, downregulation of the CB1 receptor in chronic cannabis users versus partial agonism slash antagonism at the CB1 receptor by other phytocannabinoids in marijuana products may compete with propofol, increasing the required dose. This concludes our episode on acute cannabis ingestion. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.